You're listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from BIV and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, BC CIO of the Year joins me to talk all about his career. Plus, the BIV's weekly tech panel talks Google's labor board settlement, Libra, and how and why you should get your digital affairs in order. Tomorrow, you can join us as we celebrate standout technology leadership and breakthrough innovation at the inaugural BC CTO Awards. The program honors chief information officers, chief technology officers, and others in top IT posts across BC. This year's six award recipients were profiled recently in BIV. Their stories can be read online at BIV.com where you can also go for more information about the event. It takes place as an awards luncheon on September 18th at the Fairmont Waterfront. While America remains Canada's largest trading partner, the partnership, as we know, can be fraught with uncertainty, tension, tariffs, and legal challenges. For many businesses, this environment is difficult to navigate. So on October 2nd, BIV will host experts who can offer insight into navigating the U.S. for business. The discussion will examine best practices to optimize opportunity in times of geopolitical challenge. It will also help businesses steer away from difficult straits. And finally, Canada's first year of legalized cannabis has seen significant industrial development and investment. We've also seen a range of regulations imposed around consumer outlets, a shortage of supply, and a persistent black market that complicates the landscape. So what have we learned? What lessons can be applied to the next stage of legalization? On October 9th, BIV's Cannabis One Year On panel examines industry opportunities, challenges, and next steps. For these events, visit BIV.com slash events. Here's our show. Tomorrow, BIV hosts its first annual BC CTO Awards, which honors the province's top chief information, innovation, and technology officers. Barry Ravellis is the recipient of our CIO of the Year Award. He calls himself a strategic information officer. He's also the senior vice president and chief strategy officer at Pacific Blue Cross. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. What is a strategic CIO? Uh, Someone who translates the needs of the business into technology. And, and I think there's, there is a perception of, techno- of CIOs of being very technical versus uh, really understanding the business. And I think when I became a CIO, which is now 11 years ago, first one at, at, at the PHSA, um, very much focused on trying to take the technology assets and what investments we were making in technology and drive outcomes. Like why are, why are we in... Why are we using this? What are we doing with it um, versus just operating it? And mm-hmm. I think um, being focused on not only just running the technology, which sometimes has its own adventures, but also using the technology to change things. And I think if you look at organizations that have been successful, they've taken the um, excitement or the opportunity with technology and applied it in a way that's actually changed the organization for the better. Um, and that's been certainly my focus over my career. How much of the role is about communication, communicating tech needs to those who make decisions, communicating the business goals to those who develop the tech? A lot. Um, It's interesting. uh, As I was sitting down and writing my speech for tomorrow's sneak sneak preview, one of the things I talked about is that my success has been driven by telling a story. So I'm a storyteller Um, and telling a story about why. Why are we doing this? Why do we need to do this? What are the risks of doing this? What are the risks of not doing this? And that story, I, I tell stories all day. Um, I never thought I'd be a great three teacher telling stories all day, but I, but certainly that's a key focus. Um, technology can tend to be very intimidating to lots of people, um, people who have used it on a daily basis or people who don't understand how they all fit together. And it's certainly my job to piece those pictures together in a way that um, someone from the board all the way down to a customer service agent can understand why, not just, okay, it's there. You've worked with technology in a variety of roles, but interestingly, across a variety of industries as well. On the topic of storytelling, what's your story? How would you describe hmm. the journey of your career? Wow, the journey of my career. Um, you know, I was always, I, I, it's interesting, I, I've sat back, you know, being, you know, when I when I was selected for this award, 
um, thinking about that journey and where that journey started. You know, I, I still, I grew up in Windsor, Ontario. I was a town of 200,000, very much influenced by the U.S. Have you ever been to Windsor? It's uh, right across the border from mm-hmm. Detroit. The Detroit River separates. You look, you stand, stand, in, stand in downtown Windsor and think you're in these build buildings, but they're actually <laughs> the United States. And, you know, I never, and I grew up with, uh, my mom was a teacher. My dad sold real estate. Um, small town, hardworking, and never, never underestimated that. I remember having this conversation with my mom, I think after I failed an exam in grade, grade 11, probably one of the only ones that I failed. And uh, it was in English. And she said, you know, as long as you, uh, as long as you outwork somebody, um, then you, you know, if they, if they outsmart you, that's fine. If they, if they outwork you, then that you can't be outworked. And I think that's been always what I've done. I've tried to work hard. Um, I'm, I've always been curious and curious and being able to take pictures and objects and concepts and put them together very simply, whether that's been in a lecture, whether that's been in, you know, I was on student council in business school. Um, I've always tried to put myself in the middle of the situation and try to piece those elements together. And then, you know, the, the magic, and we talked about it in the article that, that you wrote uh, for, for business in Vancouver, it was that computer when I got when I was 21 mm-hmm. that sort of set that technology light a fire. And I was like, this is the coolest thing. And I've always tried to take that picture of technology and how it could change things. And, and I think I've always been in lots of things that I've done, um, looking ahead of what the implications are, not just today. And I think that that's when, you know, if I look all the way through my career, whether I was in consulting, when I was at TELUS, was there at a PHSA, um, it's always, what does the world look like five or six years from now? And then work your way backwards. Um, you may not get it totally right. Um, but more times than not, I've got it right. And, and, and that's comforting. Sometimes it's a little, <laughs> little intimidating because it's like, oh my goodness, the amount of work we're going to have to do to get mm. there. But then it's my job to be able to translate it. And I, and I've certainly done that throughout my, throughout my career. I think the other thing that's been really important and I, I touched on and I'll touch on this tomorrow is um, I've always tried to be human and, and that may sound a bit odd but I've worked with lots of people who don't let them let sort of open them off per, open themselves out personally to their peers and to their direct reports and to the people they report to um, and yeah sure I I'm, you know I'm as focused as anybody else but I've also certainly tried to be human you know laughter a few tears along the way Life hasn't been perfect, I don't think, for anybody. Um, and I think that touch of humanity has helped me build some really special relationships and, and keep um, people loyal to me, um, not because I've asked, but because I've just treated them with how they were and, and they've wanted to be able to do some fun things. It makes sense. I mean, we spend, after all, so much of our lives at work with people we have to work with. It's very true. Very <laughs> true. And and I think uh, when I look back um, – uh, you know, the messages I've had on LinkedIn and the messages I've had out of the blue, um, it's I've taken great pride in some of those messages just because those relationships that I've cultivated may have not talked to them for a while. And it's been very gratifying that that I did make an impact or I had made a connection and it's still, in their view, important to maintain. For anyone who's read the story online, it, it says that you became one of the youngest partners at EY mm-hmm. Canada mm-hmm. at the age of the old age, 31. 31, yeah. You spent a number of years there. Mm-hmm. It brought you out to the West Coast. Did. What do you think your experience at EY set you up to do later in your career? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I guess a, a couple of things. One, when you are a consultant, you're always you're you're working with you're working usually working on very big problems because organizations hire you to drive value quickly and be able to deliver value quickly. Um, and so, um, and get paid commensurately for that. So um, understanding the urgency that you're being asked, the questions you're being asked, being able to deliver data and information on time, being able to deliver crisply, um, and being exposed to senior people across fair, large multiple industries. I think the other part is, is that um, when I look at the talent that I was working with, in Toronto, when in the consulting practice in Toronto, I'm blown away. I never realized at the time, but look at where they are now. It's just amazing. Um, 
And uh, so that's been a, that was, that was certainly a huge gift, not realizing at the time, but realizing it now. Um, and I think the other part is um, I, I got exposed to multiple industries, understanding the multiple, the different needs and, and, and expectations in those industries, which gives you a level of adaptation and comfort that no matter what situation you're in, you can ask the questions to tease out what you need to get out. And so um, I think all of those things have been uh, um, been a key focus. And I think the final one is um, I learned it's I learned how to work hard. You can work hard and not be effective, but when you've got to deliver something quickly and or deliver it with great impact, um, knowing what questions to ask, when to ask it, and then how to deliver it is is, is is, is a skill you learn. It's not necessarily something that sort of you're born with. What are some of the secrets behind that skill? Um, well, tell a story. That's, that's certainly an important <laughs> one. I remember many a nights where I would, or, and there were certainly nights when, or early mornings or days where we would take the presentation and this was the early days of PowerPoint. So PowerPoint, Microsoft office, when they were making bazillions of dollars off office and we would print the presentation off and put it into a boardroom and every slide, and we'd sit there and look at the story. It's like storyboarding. So you think about graphic designers today that storyboard. We were storyboarding presentations. And it it's re- and then you become self-critical and put yourself in the eyes of a client. And that was such an amazing experience, realizing I use it today. I mean, it's like, what would the reader, user say about this? And you become very self-critical yourself. In some ways you become your worst critic and then you push yourself to a point where you've tried to ask every question and then you've, uh, and then you've, um, and then you tend to have them, most of them answered, may not have them all. Um, but I, I vividly remember that, you know, putting these slides out and just, just walking through and Xing them out and taking, and then you'd <laughs> rearrange them, but it was very much this build that story. It was really, it was really powerful. Um, I think the other part is, is that, you know, I had a chance to travel. I, I traveled quite a bit when I was at Ernst & Young. Um, um, I remember my, once again, I'm the kid from Windsor. My, my first trip, I joined Ernst & Young in 94. And my first trip uh, was to here, to Vancouver. Um, I was helping to put in the, uh, at that time, the branch land or the branch network for CIBC Wagundi across the country. This was the first, I mean, you kind of laugh when you think about it, but first client server PC network that Wagundi had put in. And um, I got, you know, I need you to go to Vancouver. I need you to go do this QA. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, they're going to fly me to Vancouver. This is like the <laughs> coolest thing ever. And my mom, who passed away a number of years after that, um, I called her and said, mom, I'm, I'm getting, I'm going, they're flying me to Vancouver. So I think that, and I say that as a, this little kid, and I think that, um, and I felt like this sort of kid in a candy store, but I think the elements of having the, having that sense of seeing the country, seeing the world, I had a chance to go to Hong Kong and I had a chance to go to Malaysia, um, realizing that different business practices, things are done differently. Um, what a, what a, an amazing country we have that we live in. Um, I've had the chance to live and work, uh, work, certainly not live, um, well, live in two provinces, but see nine or 10 of them. Um, it's, uh, it, it, I think that's been, you give that broad pan-Canadian perspective has been, was really helpful too. I like the visual of storyboarding. Mm-hmm. Was storyboarding involved in the creation of the vision behind Telus Health? Yeah, well, it's that's a really that's a really interesting the Telus Health story because I I um, uh, not to speak out of school, but um, I, I after I got the award, I sent Joe and Natalia a note, and he sent me really a nice note back. But Joe approached me at the sales conference in Banff. Telus has a sales conference every year. I had been working on public sector, the public sector West sort of vertical, and that's what I was hired to do. Joe pulled me aside. It was in the lobby. And I still, as I'm telling you this story, I can visualize the conversation. <laughs> and um, I remember Joe saying, you know, want to do the healthcare strategy. And, and uh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, <Sure>. and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, usually I would sort of like, okay, and then think about it. And I'm like, he was really serious, like really serious. And uh, he didn't say it with a smile on his face, but he wasn't, he was really serious. And, and I was like, okay, I had a small team of six or seven. And I'm like, okay, now what do I do? So I had a, a number of really 
interesting um, team members pulled together. And we, it, 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 the storyboarding happened in a way, and it, it, the concept of storyboarding happened in a way, I'll call it more inter- iterative because I would take these concepts and I was working with our strategy team at TELUS. We did a bunch of research and I started to put, I'll call them straw models together. And I would get a number of people who I know were very, um, very perceptive and very understand. And I would present to them internally. What do you think? And that, that discussion shaped where we ended up. Um, you know, when I was hired in what, what was called vertical marketing, um, and that was within the business, the TELUS business solutions at the time, we were very much focused on flipping the business and flipping the business to become verticalized than, um, I'll call it segment-driven versus product-driven. Um, TELUS today obviously has you know very large business units and, and, and sells product. But you and I as individuals are sort of in the in the consumer business. We're, we're sold to as consumers. Um, in the enterprise business, um, the TELUS was selling at the time product. I said, can I sell you something faster or, or bigger? Or And there were four vertical marketing VPs, me being one of them, brought in to sort of flip the business and to focus on segments. And so um, in doing that, health we they had, it was done regionally there were four um, public sector oil and gas financial services health was a spin out of public sector and um and so this iterative process we went through internally we didn't have products we you know i spent some time putting together products that we new products that we sell that we sold um it was a bit of trial and error there, there were we, we were a small team we were seven but it was what was powerful to me was or seven or eight we were telling stories all the time we were communicating all the time and it you tell the message enough, it was very powerful for me to see that if the message is correct, people will internalize it and then start acting in a way that that the the data is telling you to do. And um, a few trial and errors, and then and then certainly along the way, we were the, the business was growing um, materially, and that's when um, very much started to become much more strategic and lots of conversations about how do we grow, and that sort of led to the acquisition of Merges and um, Tell Us Else was born. Um, from that process. There's a lot of focus now on health tech and how we're going to innovate in health. At the time, though, this is years ago, did it feel like you were living in the future? Did it feel like you were creating ahead of the curve? Well, yeah. I think the other thing to recognize at the time was um, that was the time of media, of telcos buying media. Mm -hmm. So um, Rogers, uh, I think, bought the Blue Jays somewhere around there. Um, Rogers Sportsnet. Um, Bell did the TSN deal or Bell Media a little bit after that, um, but the focus was content. We want to focus on content, and 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 Darren and the executive made a decision to say no, and certainly I think through Darren's leadership, um, focus on health and health being um, a differentiator. And so I I could see it, I I could. And and I was living in it and I could see where the technology was going. Europe was ahead of us. There's a bunch of other things. Um, certainly was sticky. Um, the 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 speed of adoption here in Canada was always a little bit behind the rest of the world. But there were days where it's like this is going to be the coolest thing ever. And and um, it didn't happen necessarily as fast as I think we had sort of laid out. But looking back ten years now, um, you know, a lot of things we talked about have come to life so it's been really exciting to see even even me not being a telus to be able to look um, from the outside in and be very proud of of um, some of the things that we'd set out to accomplish and now have been accomplished you mentioned earlier that a lot of your role is looking ahead five or six years into the future and mm-hmm. then planning back from there mm-hmm. in the space of health and technology mm-hmm. where do you think we'll be in five or six years well that's a really interesting question <laughs> um I I think uh, I think there are a number of things. I mean, we talk a lot about wellness, um, and we've talked a lot about wellness and prevention and other things. I think at some point we'll have our not only our personal health record on our phone, or may not be called a phone at the time, whatever it is, um, but it'll also be able to be interfaced with data that gives you a care plans and knows about what you do and you know, being able, you would consent to say, take my data and put it into a, a model and what's it going to tell me? Um, and I don't mean genetically, I mean sort of lifestyle and other things, but be able to make it easy. I think the challenge right now at a personal level is um, the information we have about our health, it doesn't give us the feedback on a real-time basis in a way that we want to ingest it. Um, 
regularly. Although what's very interesting is, is that with the digitization of clinical health over the last 10 years, one of the reasons that Google, Google actually left the health business and has come back. And one of the reasons they've come back is because most of the data in a clinical setting is now structured um, in the United States and, and predominantly now in Canada. Um, I, I think, you know, we will, we will, we will have and the healthcare system macroly, if you look back 30 years, was created by providers. So it so what I mean by that created both for providers. All systems, all technology was zeroed in on the radiologist, the GP, that it was focused on them. With the advent of technology in our hands and others, the system is going through this transformation to the citizen or the individual. And we're right in the middle of it. We just don't realize we're in the middle of it. Um, what that means and how that looks, and then the power of the data sets that are underneath it will be what's brought to life over the next number of years. This, this the, the other piece I think that's going to be really interesting is how organizations in this place, in this space, um, become marketplaces. And so two-sided marketplaces are going to be really important. When you look at any organization, um, Pacific Blue Cross, take that as an example, we have members on one side, we have providers on another side, we have payers that we pay. Um, what role can we play to curate the content and to make your care better and to broker that information, not just a pay a claim? Because we have a relationship with you, how do we take that um, information and, and interaction and um, make it to the point where I still want to go back to Pacific Blue Cross right now? You're 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 a member or you're working with us because you own a policy of some sort. Um, so that's that evolution is going to be very profound. And the organizations you can see marketplaces today: um, Facebook's marketplace, Google's marketplace. Um, they're also the wealth, you know, the, one of the most valuable companies mm-hmm. in the world. Um, and, 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 and the value and those, those organizations have extracted value from the market over the last five or six years. And that's, um, it's a telling sign of what's going to become in the health space, the insurance space. Um, and I think, um, where you play in that space will be, be how you maintain economic value and what you do in the future. A lot of that value of course is understanding the needs of various stakeholders, understanding mm-hmm. how we interact, what they want, what they like, what they don't like. Is PBC positioned in a similar way to better understand various stakeholders in this in this space? We're working on it and working hard on it. I think um, um, we've we've had a very, you know, we're, we're the largest um, benefits provider in British Columbia, um, a, a very rich history, 75 years. Um, it's been a uh, um, 70, we're now about 78 years. Um, it's been a, um, you know, we've, we've been in strong, deep relationships. And I think those relationships now, how do you take those large enterprise relationships, large organization relationships, whether it's with, you know, um, health benefits trust or the municipal pension planner or that, and then be able to foster that relationship with their individual, individual claimant, um, or their employee, um, is going to be, um, hugely important and how do we play along that that transaction you know that that interaction and, and that process the the other side is is that as, as organizations start to devolve we're only going to pay so much and you've got to cut, top up or pick up additional benefits um, how do we play in that we, we have law you know very strong individual products and travel products how do we make sure that when that buying decision is made that we're in that process all at all at all times but not in an obtrusive way but we are sort of your partner in, in health um, so, uh, we've spent over the last number of years, sort of what we have, we've had a strategy called member first, and that focus is very much on the individual taking those enterprise relationships and building that deep relationship with the individual. Um, we've done, you know, I think, you know, the acknowledgement on the technology side, um, and why, you know, I, uh, certainly based on their application I put in, um, you know, rebuilt our mobile app and rebuilt our, 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 our web platform um, rebuilt, um, our analytics platform, all with taking those into account and very much focused on that. And so now have those building blocks to take those forward and and um, and position us in these different ways that we've treated that the, the insurance business has 
different than the insurance business has traditionally done. A lot of that innovation happens behind the scenes and Mm -hmm. clients either have no idea what's going on or they recognize a result that they like Mm -hmm. and don't necessarily know that's the result of automation or Mm -hmm. AI or something like that. Tell me about some of the interesting projects you're working on now at Pacific Blue Cross. Um, We're we're one of them we're doing right now is around um, using artificial intelligence to look at some of our data around pricing. Mm. Um, there's so many di- different nuances about pricing and, and, and certainly pricing in, um, in insurance because you're dealing with ages and actuarial tables and others. You think of all the data sets that are in there. Um, it's hard for a human to process all those individual nuances. Um, so that's tremendously interesting to see that. And we're using AI in our also using artificial intelligence for fraud too. So that's tremendously exciting. Um, unfortunately, fraud is is part of our industry. And being able to track that um, is uh, is really um is really important. One of the one of the solutions that we just launched, which is now full, is fully digital, is a partnership with Penn City um, for solo and micro entrepreneurs. So we talk about the gig economy all the time. Mm-hmm. The challenge being a, a solo entrepreneur or one or two employees, you you don't get the opportunity to be in insurance pools to mitigate your risk. So the prices are higher for benefits coverage. We've structured a product in partnership with Van City to give you that opportunity, um, but be able to not only buy it online, but have someone call you back and provide a bit of a higher touch service. And, and it's been tremendously, the, their feedback's been fantastic because that segment has been underserved. Um, uh, meanwhile, it's, it's, if you build a sense of loyalty in it, it's, uh, it's tremendously exciting. So the digital buy flow, the digital workflow, um, being able to fulfill right online um, is uh, and go right into our backend systems. Um, I think the other unique thing about Pacific Blue Cross is that, um, which gives us the opportunity to do these very innovative things that so I'll call them at the edge of our platform, is that in 2014, um, we launched, we, we, had, we consolidated all of our claim systems into one. Um, so in, in the insurance space, we're very unique because most insurance organizations have legacy systems that have been around for a long time and they patch them together with the information engines that they manage. Um, we're very blessed and I'm blessed to be able to manage this asset because it gives us a single data source and it gives us a single transaction engine that allows us to interface it relatively quickly. And so all of those innovations that we do at the, at the edge of our network or edge of our platform are um, are tremendously um, tremendously exciting, and I, I think the, the the last one I would say, and I can't have answer this question without talking about security. <laughs> um, I live that on a, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. We um, we are uh, just in the process of bringing live a, uh, a software that's called Casby, and Casby is, um, and I won't get the acronym totally right, but but it allows. Um, us to see into cloud-based services. One of the challenges with cloud-based services is that when you put your data in the cloud service, you actually you become blind because you don't see what's going on in the cloud service. Um, it's sitting in the cloud service and you got to retrieve it. Casby actually goes right into your environment and actually can see who touches your data sets inside the cloud service. Um, and it keeps up a digital connection. It was a, a software that was, a company that was bought by McAfee um, and our, our head of security, chief information security officer has been acknowledged by McAfee to apply this technology. And it's tremendously exciting because it gives me some comfort. Um, you never have total comfort, but um, um, <laughs> gives me some comfort in this space um, to know that we have some pretty leading edge tools to be able to make sure that our members and our plan sponsors data is safe. As we wrap up, Barry, it's been great having you on the show. You mentioned you're curious, mm-hmm. you're always curious, always learning, whether yeah. it relates to PBC or not in the area of technology. Yeah. What are you curious about? What are you watching? Wow. What am I watching? I, I'm, 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 I'm watching to see, I guess there's two things and it's maybe you seem esoteric for the technology, but I, um, what are we going to do in the privacy space that people are comfortable with their data? It's a very interesting discussion in health because if you if you have the feedback, people are, would say to you, "Well, um, I want to sh- I want to ensure my I know what you're doing with my data." Meanwhile, you log into Google and you let your data do whatever you want. So the privacy model and the consent model and how we manage consent is going to be. How are we going to sort this out? Not that the technology is there, but how are we going to get a general acceptance from 
our members and I'll call it the public at large to manage privacy in a way that they're comfortable with and they can see. I've always had to view that one of the things that will form, and I haven't seen it yet, but it, I, don't, I think it is a, I'll call it a privacy utility, a consent utility. Hmm. And we think of BC Hydro um, as managing electricity. But if you think of the challenges we face every time you manage and give consent, we don't have one place that has a consent engine or a consent platform to manage it. There's companies out there that could do it. They have the breadth. Um, the other challenge in healthcare is we don't have an area code system. You know, every other industry has an area code system. So telecoms have area codes. Um, travel, every airline has its own ID. Um, it's really hard in health. Like, what's the, what's the ID? Uh, you have a personal health information number in British Columbia, but it's different than the information number you'd use in, say, the U.S. or whatever. Um, you know, that interaction of data and the distribution of data, be able to, to, to manage that um, and what that means. Um, and I, and I think, you know, what's going to be the role of voice in all of this? Um, right now, all of us type in things. We use voice a little bit. We use Siri and, you know, mm -hmm. whether you use Google Voice and others. Um, but voice is going to become huge um, because people are interacting, um, using and talking. And, and we talk about CLX and we see some of these things. Um, it'll be very interesting in the health space and health in general of how voice becomes and where does it become prominent and where doesn't it become prominent. Um, and that'll be, and that'll be um, really interesting to see that evolution as we go forward. And some of the challenges too, wouldn't it be great to say, Hey Siri, these are my symptoms. Give me advice that comes with a whole slew of ethical right. implications. Well, you just, you just peel the onion on that question right. and you just, Wow. You know, and then is that what you want? Um, you know, I, I, I had a, you know, I always, when I ever go into my doctor, we get into this long conversation so they know what I do. And, um, um, one of them was, was, uh, talking about, you know, using technology to diagnose skin things and others. And, um, you know, it's like who, you know, I heard a really interesting conversation, like the alg the AI algorithms, who programs them? Do they take into account diversity? Do they take into account different colors of skin? Do they take into account socioeconomic things? Or are we just, are we using it from a, you know, a, 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 a view of, you know, the Western world, the Western, mm -hmm. you know, Western view? Um, so it's a really interesting to your point. I'm going to talk into a system. What am I getting back? it's an interesting point of how and where it'll evolve to. And so um, there's, it's constantly, the constant questions are, are continuing to. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming on and congratulations Thank on you. your award. Thank you for having me. That's Barry Ravallis, Chief Information and Strategy Officer and Senior Vice President at Pacific Blue Cross. You can also visit BIV.com slash BC-CTO-Awards for more information on our awards program, as well as profiles of all six 2019 award recipients. It's time now for our weekly tech panel. Joining me in studio, Linda Faucus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. Good to have you. Hi, Haley. And we have Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market. Good to have you back. Thanks, Haley. We've been talking a lot on this panel, on the show about Libra, Facebook's cryptocurrency that's going to dominate the world and cause havoc and take down sovereign nations. There's been a lot of this this week, discussion, including from global banks that were questioning some of the people behind this about what it's going to mean. Uh, what do you think the takeaways are, Linda, from all this concern and the fact that Facebook keeps having to defend its plans with Libra? I think the takeaways are that the blockchain is going mainstream. So that's a good conversation to have. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to know that this is Zuckbox. This is Facebook creating Libra. <laughs> what is it? Zuckbucks or Facecoin, whatever we're going to call it. Marcus yeah. is trying to get Facebook, or Facebook away from the conversation, but this is Facebook's baby. They created the white paper. Facebook makes money by monetizing the data it collects. That's a really important piece that we keep in mind here. I don't think it's going to take down the fiat currencies. That's not going to be an issue. But this is a payment system. This type of payment system is coming at us, right? Amazon's working on some 
similar version of their digital payment systems, as is Google, as is Apple. So we need to start paying attention to what these systems mean for our society, um, how we're going to use them, and most importantly, how we're going to lock down that personal data that um, is going to be accumulated in this massive honeypot of information about us, right? This is potentially amazing and potentially insanely destructive, much like technology over the last 20 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, Owen, because there are a lot of outstanding concerns. And I think people want to hear more from Facebook and Libra about what they're going to do to address them. Is there an element at play here of just conservatism in the industry? Because this is a pretty innovative concept. Yeah. So, I mean, cryptocurrencies, obviously, with Bitcoin, it's uh, it's kind of percolating. <clears throat> uh, I guess more than percolating now, but the well, I dug, did a, dug in a little bit, and mm-hmm. there uh, there is the know your know your client. Uh, so they're abiding by kind of like some basic banking ideas, um, and that means that they will have uh, government ID and verification of the um, of the accounts. So it is like literally trusting you know pretty much Facebook with all of this data, which is essentially t- could be tied to your cash, your money. Um, so. That was the only piece that was kind of weird because, you know, the whole idea behind these cryptocurrencies, not the whole idea, but one of the major concepts is is the anonymity. I can't say I the word, but... Easy for you to I, say. I, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so, anonymity. I'll try thank it. You, thank That's you. That's a tough one. Yeah. yeah so, um, and they're just kind of throwing that away by being essentially like a different type of of, of bank where, you know, right. they, they have these registered accounts of people that they know um, that, you know, if there is a breach of data, then they would have, uh, you know, it's a huge amount of really important data. So yeah, it's definitely a concern. Well, and they're talking about um, the people who are talking about an open digital identity um, kind of raises the hairs up on my back of my neck. I'm like, hold on. What they said in the white paper is Facebook is creating a currency, and I think it's important the conversation doesn't get stuck in the currency. We can buy things with Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp now. Um, what they want to do is be the open source uh, provider of this digital identity um, platform that goes global. So they want to allow us to have these digital identities that can travel around the world uh, locked down in one place. We don't have to have our digital information flying all over the digital universe. And and let's keep in mind, again, that's Facebook wanting to create this protocol. Facebook, who we, we know very well people we cannot trust with our data. We know when they get it, they monetize it. They don't secure it. It can be hacked. So so they're the wrong people to have this conversation, in my opinion. It's the wrong organization, the wrong company to um, to have this conversation. And if we're going to talk about digital identities, we've got, what, five points of contact, and we can pretty much take the data from being anonymous or um, pseudonymous over to being kind of attached to me. So five points of information, and now everything I spend, everywhere I spend it, and everyone I'm spending it with, is part of the public ledger that can be accessed, perhaps hacked, and tied to me personally. So this is an important um, conversation to have, and I'm hoping that as governments try to rein in this uh, project Facebook is creating, that they really focus in on this. It's not just about the fiat currency threat, which I think is small. It's about our, our identities in our digital world. Yeah, and just to add, there is uh, like there is a positive angle if they can get it right, where there's you know a certain amount of controls or even technology that can you know guarantee the security of it. Um, the whole African payment system with cell phones, how they transfer cash back from people working uh, outside of their city or in a city out to their uh, to their families, it's actually really important. Uh, the, they currently send it as a credit on their cell phones, and uh, I've I've always been interested in that because. Um, they're like the uh, the part of this unbanked uh, mm-hmm. world, and um, there's a billion of those people. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, th- it is actually exciting if they can accomplish, um, you know, a really simple banking system that will, because um, they also get gouged when they do these transfers. Um, and so if it can be, you know, like free, it, it's the people that shouldn't should have a system for, you know, free currency uh, exchanges. Uh, and unfortunately, they're being somewhat taken advantage of. Although there's a lot of great initiatives internationally to help, but there is the unbanked, um, and and there is a whole angle to it that could be super useful for a lot of people who need help. Um, so yeah, I, I hope it works, um, but. 
it's in the DNA of, you know, of Facebook to be disruptive. Um, and it's easy to forget that they're, they're way out in head. They're like far by far number one with, um, practically a third of the world being, um, active users. Um, so people don't realize that Facebook is such a juggernaut. They, they do such a poor job of, um, you know, Zuckerberg does such a poor job of like calming people. Um, and I think they're trying to do that with Libra as well to say, oh, don't worry about it. Then you read the white paper and you realize they have global domination plans. And yeah. uh, <laughs> Of the 2.2 billion people in his fiefdom, right? And he's yeah. controlling, again, 60% of the voting power of Facebook. This isn't a, a you know... A shareholder vote when we want to decide what we're going to do with the data. This is Zuckerberg deciding on the future of the company. So this is big tech dominating. Um, in in our case, perhaps payments of two point two billion people, how we're moving our money, and and who we are in this digital universe. Yeah, and then going through the other uh, contributors with uh, Mastercard, Visa, uh, PayPal, Stripe. These are you know the biggest players in the financial space for uh you know for handling these t- types of uh, consumer transactions so if they're all at play this is it definitely has the ability to go mainstream quickly and and uh rapidly so i think to yeah exactly to your point uh, there has to be very clear rules transparency and how this is going to work um otherwise i think it's right to actually push back a lot on this even though i love the technical piece of it um it is very important that we get this right because it could actually really take off and somewhere somehow it's going to right if if this falls apart and it's just another bad idea like facebook portal or whatever that thing is that's still out there (laughs) spying on us maybe it just falls away but someone's going to make this happen jack dorsey's all over bitcoin we've got a lot of people who are like let's make this this blockchain thing happen. Let's make digital currency a thing. We want open identities, uh, portable digital identities. So it's all going to happen. Is it Libra that's going to make it happen? Yeah. Yeah, And you just need some census. It's funny they're meeting in Basel, which is like where they, you know, derive the uh, banking rules. Um, But uh, actually, so my brother-in-law is big in the crypto space and uh, he kind of just summarized it all for me that these are these people that are successful with billions of assets now, um, they're all risk takers. Um, They have such a huge risk tolerance. They're not really the people to actually help with a underlying, you know, sort of a utility for uh, for us all. Uh, So, yeah, there needs to be some cool heads and some really thoughtful measures in place. If not Facebook, though. Who would it be? Because we're talking about either a, a company or entity or a group of companies or individuals with the breadth and the user base and the platform, the mm. skills and the finances to pull something like that off. I mean, the pool seems really small. Yeah. So up to now, it's been basically a speculation type of environment uh, yeah. where it's just a store of wealth and some potential you know, negative stuff there too. Um, but I think it will just naturally proceed into that where... Uh, you know the anonymity piece of it is actually used, um, so it will it will it will naturally grow into these types of ecosystems. But it'll take a long time. Mm-hmm. Facebook could just you know jumpstart it. Um, so well, we've got Microsoft, IBM, right. Google, mm-hmm. Amazon. Mm-hmm. You know they all want in. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So who takes that? I think it's probably safe to say, just like Owen said, it's going to be a tech company. Right. This right. is this is a tech thing. It's not going to be a bank in Switzerland. <laughs> no. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see because to a point you made too about Zuckerberg and maybe him not doing such a great job at calming fears, they say they'll appease regulators, but they also haven't said that they're willing to back away if they don't get it. There seems to be this thinking that they will make it happen one am, way or another. Am I the only guy in the room who's a little afraid that regulators, these are the same people who couldn't understand social media when the hearings happened last year? It's like, are you serious? We're now going to have to try to figure out blockchain with these people and right. digital identities. This is confusing stuff for people in this space who do yeah. this you know, for a living. And, and oh my goodness, I, I'm in the glue world where it's anybody born before 1964. And I can tell you this is hard mm-hmm. for the older brain to get. Oh, I mean, yeah, and it's hard for anyone. The block, the underlying tech is very complicated, but I think we can kind of abstract it up. Um, yeah, but the regulators and the the bureaucrats that would actually put into place these measures, I don't. Yeah, they would leave glaring holes. I don't know. Asking the questions, are they going to ask the questions? Are they going to yeah. understand the answers? Yeah, exactly. And so they could leave uh, a lot on the table as far as security. Um, I don't know your thoughts about the whole cookie thing, but you know, whoever put that in place, now we have to click accept on every web page. It's very annoying, and and it's just because they didn't understand they were already doing that. Uh, you know, basic functionality of the internet. Every um, time at Glue, we talk about 
the internet and we talk about it all the time and security every time we're all together all of one of our classes and online forums um cookies are a big conversation okay yeah. what is this thing and they think by denying or not accepting that they're not being tracked yeah. they hit okay and they're like what does that mean and why does it keep popping up am i but understanding how the internet works how right. are we piecing together the story of your digital life is very confusing for people and you know you don't want to fear monger but it is somewhat horrifying to look down that rabbit hole yeah yeah i still like the question from the hearings of how do you make money it's a great question to ask yeah. facebook which is exactly kind of funny <laughs> 15 billion dollars in advertising revenue last quarter there's a hint yeah 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 it's a lot of money yeah uh, moving on still on the topic of big tech though as part of google's settlement with the national labor relations board it has to acknowledge that its employees have certain rights and it needs to post this publicly what do you think, and I'd like to get both of your thoughts on this, Linda, maybe I'll start with you. What do you think this whole affair says about the culture at Google? I think Google has to grow up. I think all the tech companies have to grow up. All of a sudden, our basic human rights and our rights protected under law are now part of our workplace. So that's good. Mm -hmm. um, I do I do appreciate that they're trying not to, uh, they're trying to keep employees from inflammatory conversations and basically getting in fistfights at the office. That's important too. But Google can no longer rule its uh, kingdom with an iron hand, right? They can't just say, this is the way it is. We're a left-wing company with democratic values or not, and we need you to believe what we believe. Keep your um, your personalities at the door uh, and just go along with what we want. They can't do that anymore. And their employees, we're seeing, thank goodness, are coming up and talking out against many of the projects that I think some most people would find somewhat abhorrent that Google has wanted to participate in or begun participating in. But it is now, um, uh, we live in a time where our comments, our conversations, and our thoughts can be shared. And it's only right, certainly from the Google world, from all of our companies, that everybody has a free and open voice and can be heard by everyone. Oh, and what do you think this says about the culture at Google? And also, do you think that the culture will start to change now? Or will we see more of the same? Yeah, Google's always been in a bit of a, <clears throat> a strange one. Um, I guess similar to Facebook, where you ask like, "How do they make money?" Um, <laughs> you know, kind uh, of the same answer. Yeah, yeah kind of the same <laughs> answer. Uh, but Google particularly needs to be so transparent that they are see through because their control over uh, their potential control over public opinion is so you know it's excluding China, it's the entire world. And so if they decided to sway a certain way. You know that's a that's a really big red flag internationally. Um, so yeah, I, I think that Google needs uh, just to be very very clear about um, the the inclusiveness and the transparency of, of their attitude. They should be completely non opinionated. Um, you know, and so the the opaqueness of the or the 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 strong arming the strong arming of the whole situation uh, of like trying to suppress certain things and whatnot. I don't know. It just seems to be handled really poorly. They should have been very open right away. Uh, in order to ease fears, but yeah, um, the G Google where it's heading, it really needs to, um, it really needs to grow up and actually have uh, you know professional commitment to uh, not be involved politically uh, and and uh, all those matters because yeah, otherwise it's it's a huge danger. And yeah, and there is this fine line between you're exactly right and and insisting that it rise above that and and insisting that its employees try and rise above that. It's a little bit about what this recent lawsuit was about, I think. Um, but that's hard to do, right? When people want to have their opinions and express their own um, opinions in the workplace. So Google is in an odd place, but they're also in a similar place to Facebook. Eric Schmidt, Sergey Brin, and Larry Page, 60%. They control 60% of the voting rights of that company. So again, we're looking at a very small cohort of people controlling basically the, the planet minus China. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a scary thought. And it fits into the conversations we've had previously about big tech, who's going to regulate it? Has it gotten too big? Could an acknowledgement like this, even though it, it doesn't come voluntarily, it's part of a settlement, could it suggest that maybe one of the best ways of regulating big tech or holding them to account comes from within that employees can speak to media freely that they can sound alarm bells or is this is this not that yeah so i have kind of an unpopular opinion in the tech world i think that 
the government needs to split up companies that are too big that have a monopoly. It's hard to gauge with the technology world, um, but our our whole um, our whole like um, system of uh, quality of life to, requires that we reduce margins by having competitiveness in the marketplace. And so, if you have Google and there's nobody else, um, you know, not only are we not getting the uh, level of service that we probably could get if we had competitors, but uh, you know, it's 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 this power piece that they can start to really sway public opinion and, and all the things mm-hmm. we've talked about. So yeah, I'm a big fan of the uh, splitting companies up to in order to make the uh, competitive landscape, uh, or at least stopping them from purchasing everyone that has a chance. Um, you know, which is another plan of uh, monopolies. So. Yeah, I, I think that's the way to do it. I don't know if internally there's enough uh, strength in union and all that. It's kind of in the hands of these few people with with the actual uh, voting control. What we have seen, though, is employees um, sh- bringing shining spotlights on projects, on work, on technologies that they find the general population wouldn't be comfortable with. And I think maybe that's where the change can come from because we're not seeing um, – the CEOs and the C-suite executives talking about the projects that they're selling to the Defense Department or want to create with China or whatever right. company you want to pick. But it's the employees saying, hold on, I don't want to be the guy at the desk coding this stuff. This isn't this isn't cool for the planet. Yeah. And so we're we're perhaps that's where the change comes from at that level is they allow us to see behind the curtain. And we know that we, the influence that that has brought has changed the direction of Microsoft on some big projects, has changed the direction of That's Google true. on some yeah. projects. So um, it's really the only thing we have as lay people. The only thing we have is their voice to help us see behind that curtain. And that seems to be pretty critically important right now. Yeah. And recently with Microsoft, uh, some employees raising red flags about their facial recognition technology that uh, they're helping the Chinese government with. Um, you know, that's another thing where if you're... A, you know, you're working there and uh, you see this going on. Uh, I think it's great that they're um, just saying, hey, wait a second, like, is this morally right? You know, so I definitely agree that there's an aspect of that. And especially as we move towards technologies that are hard for us to understand, getting into the AI world, et cetera, this is difficult stuff to comprehend. So we need we need it to be transparent and clear. And we're not getting that from the top of these companies. So hopefully we can get it from the bottom. And that's the other piece. If there's no competitors, they can kind of get away with it. Um, you know, people, you can't just switch to another search. I mean, I guess you could, uh, but you'd have to be um, pretty in dire straits to switch off of Google. Yeah, so. and live in a cave pretty yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Aside from academia, I mean, the world experts in the application of these technologies work at big private or public companies, typically. Hey, I right? have a son who's going to be graduating out of UBC at some point with uh, hopefully a doctorate. And if he was given a role in a research, a government-based research job Mm -hmm. or a huge big tech paycheck (laughs) job, I'm guessing he's a lovely guy. I'm thinking he'd go for the money as these people are, of course, going to go for the Mm -hmm. money. So the great brains are being sucked into these, these companies because, you know, we understand why they're doing it, but it does leave all the other competitors out and government being a competitor, society being a competitor to a, this brain drain that these uh, companies are attracting. Yeah, this is really interesting. It's actually a similar theme where it goes back to the general public knowing um, about privacy and knowing about sort of a rule of ethics <clears throat> or some sort of ethical framework for them to be able to you know, go forward into this new tech. Uh, so that's something that I guess we just need to focus on as a society and kind of grow up ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a good segue into this next one because there are a lot of people in the comment sections of various sites that probably have a lot of growing up to do. YouTube is piloting something called a comment card that will surface comments you've made over the last year or so, all kind of on like a profile of sorts of your commenting history. So it's not just scattered throughout YouTube. Someone could go and see what you've said as a user. I can see some good reasons for this. I could also see why it would annoy a lot of people as well. What do we think here? Is this... Oh, maybe I'll start with you because you're laughing a little bit. Yeah, YouTube comments is where you really get to see the dark side of humanity. The trailer park of the (laughs) internet. It's just brutal. I'm so surprised it took this long uh, to get to some sort of... It's kind of half-baked, but at least you can quickly see if someone's just obviously out to... uh, Not just annoy, but to 
try to destroy people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, through their history. Um, so I think it's a great idea. I think they should do even more. I, it, I guess because the system's so big, they can't really moderate it well. Um, so it's, uh, the self-moderation needs to be a play. But yeah, whatever they can do, it's, it's amazing that YouTube, like it's such a huge platform. And it's scary when you read some of these comments, um, you know, how brutal it can be. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm glad they're doing something. Yeah, I agree. I think it is a great idea. And I would like to, I don't know if I'd like to, but I'm thinking they're going to tie it to uh, a larger profile picture of people. Right now, it's just tied to your your YouTube profile. So mm. you could just be a troll on YouTube. And that's your job, trolling and spamming and or creating all these horrible comments. But and, yeah, until that comes outside of the YouTube world, so we really understand who that is, mm. what's the intention behind that, it's hard for us to know. But for a person an entity on YouTube, this can be a really useful tool. And for the rest of us to see where all this hate is coming from. Goodness, yeah. people. I breathe, just want to take a breath. I'm just trying to look up how to make chili, you know, and then I look down. <laughs> yeah, and it's like don't this, look down. It's horrible. No, no. Yeah. Don't look down. Don't scroll. <laughs> I wonder sometimes, though, whether efforts like this, it's like playing whack-a-mole. So you find a solution and then people will find a workaround, whether it's creating multiple accounts. So it's one or two comments per account or they hide their identity behind it and, and or it we just stop the hate and the insensitive comments. Or we just get better uh, at ignoring the hate, perhaps. Or Maybe that. we have to just learn when we look down to see what people thought of the chili recipe, we yeah. just move beyond the hate. <laughs> yeah, it was like great chili, delicious recipe, and then something that, you know. I hate you and want to kill you. Or, yeah, just like yeah. weird racial stuff. Awful. And it's Awful. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Fingers crossed for us. <laughs> For humanity. Yeah, for humanity. Exactly. Uh, Our final topic comes with the call to action, and that is please get your digital affairs in order. This is from a TechCrunch columnist, John Evans. He's putting out this call to action, letting us know we have to consider this now. You have to have a digital will or a digital component to your will. Do either of you have this in place or have considered it? We have a digital power of attorney class at Glue where we teach cool. people how to create this concept of a digital power of attorney so your people in your world can have access to your online world when they need it. And and these th- things, um, the Glue world is older, so it's perhaps more pressing for them. Um, but it's really important that they understand that someone needs to get in to their digital world, not necessarily after they've passed, but perhaps they're incapacitated, perhaps they're in hospital, they need to move money, they need to they want to post an update, whatever it is. But we also take it to another level because the digital afterlife is something a lot of people are starting to talk about. How do you want to be remembered in the digital world? Do you want your account shut down and and wiped out and never to be seen again? Or do you want your great, 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 great grandchildren to be able to see what grandma was like and what restaurant she went to and what her cat looked like or whatever, her YouTube chili recipe maybe. <laughs> so what, what what do we want to have happen there? So it's a big conversation we have and it's an important one to have, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Especially with the um, passwords that, you know, can't be recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, actually reminds me of that Vancouver uh, crypto, uh, cryptocurrency exchange where the, um, the owner died and didn't have any, yeah, so right. it was a couple hundred billion dollars or a couple hundred million dollars worth of assets that were lost. Um, and it's kind of all this shrouded in mystery. Um, and it was, you know, a failure to have a, an actual digital will with the access to, to those um, cryptocurrencies. So of course, yeah, the challenge, of course, is that our passwords change all the time. Yeah. Are we're oh, adding shit. accounts and yeah. apps and portals into this digital universe all the time. So it's very challenging to keep that updated. Um, and there are obviously lots of tools to help us do that in many levels. But there's a lot to consider here. And, and the olds, I call them, because I'm one of them too, um, is uh, passwords are tough for this audience. So passwords are one way in, but understanding where all your world is scattered. Where, where are you out there, mom? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What the heck? I didn't know you were on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point too, though, because you think, you know, if someone has to go through someone's affairs, I picture old photo albums and VHS tapes and this uh-huh. legacy. But increasingly, especially for younger generations, that's all going to be on a phone or all on a social media platform. So not only is it gaining access, but there's something sentimental to it too that could be the only digital copy copies of someone's life or their photos. Yeah, I have a, sentimental a thing. you know, I have a, a couple billion poorly lit photos of my kids on uh, on the cloud, and I definitely want to keep those. 
Yeah. Or pass those on to the next generation <laughs> yeah. so they can see my horrible photography work. <laughs> <laughs> Another angle I thought of this too, um, sometimes, you know, a will can be contentious if you have to div- divvy up assets like a business or something like that. What do we think about accounts of a public figure that have millions of followers or maybe important assets or aspects to them? I guess you have to decide who potentially takes that over. We could have people inheriting really valuable oh, yeah. digital assets. And those can be monetized, right? Right. So, right. so those, those are probably, I would guess, a lawyer would tell you eventually that's an asset in the yeah, estate. Right, yeah. And worth something. And let's sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Or interesting. Make use of it. Something to think about. A lot yeah. to think about. In the future, the <laughs> family uh, will be split up based on an Instagram account. Who gets it? That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> you can have 20% of the followers. I'm going to take yeah. everybody else. No one will be fighting over my thousand followers. <laughs> but if you have millions. A thousand. Tens of millions. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> my two followers, mom and dad. Oh, and Linda, thanks as always for coming on the show. Have a great day. Thank you. That's Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market, and Linda Focus, CEO at Glue Technology Society. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. All of our episodes are also available at BIV.com slash audio. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>